I got <clears throat> stuff going on, sorry. Hopefully I don't spill anything on anybody. <laughs> All right. Um, go ahead and take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, Chapter 1. Good thing I'm not needing that microphone. Let's stand on my tippy toes up there. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Let's read some verses here, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then I'll kind of introduce what we're going to do this morning. This is kind of, uh, I'll stall a minute since somebody else is getting ready to come in. Um, This is sort of following up with what we did two weeks ago when we were looking at the, uh, the trail of Christ through the, uh, through the scriptures, S- sort of on that, so uh, this does have to do with Christ as Messiah and so on. In fact, I guess I might as well just throw the, well, I'm trying to stall, throw the uh, subject out there, but this has to do with the Lord Jesus' right to David's throne, all right? In other words, uh, we kind of take things for granted like that, but how, you know, what, what's the scriptural basis that Jesus has to actually be, uh, you know, sitting on the throne of David? Hey, buddy. How you doing? <laughs> Uncle Andy, he said, yeah. You say hi to everybody? Oh, my. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, where were we? Uh, so that's our subject. We'll get back to that in a second. Let's read because the passage of Scripture that we want to read, although obviously this is associated, if you want to say, with Christmas time. That's not necessarily the reason we're looking at it. Uh, but there's some important aspects of this passage of Scripture that um, obviously are key to what we are uh, looking at subject-wise this morning. All right, so in Luke chapter 1, let me look here. Let's, let's read together in, you know, just consecutive order here, um, verses 26 through 38, 26 through 38, I don't know how many verses that is exactly, about 13 or 14 maybe. So uh, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, I'll ask Pastor Brinker to start, and I guess then I'll read, and then we'll just kind of go around like that. Luke 1, starting in 26 and down through 38, all right, so... And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came into her and said, Hail, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. She saw him, she was troubled in his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, 
thou hast found the favor of God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth the Son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing should be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel had departed from her. All right, this is um, obviously Luke's record of Mary, Jesus' mother, being informed from the Lord of what was going to happen to her. All right? And uh, in this passage, there's a number of things that are very important to, again, the subject at which we're, we're looking at here, which is Jesus' right to the Messianic throne. And this, uh, again, it kind of falls in line with some of the Psalms we've looked at in recent months, and then also with what we did two weeks ago, looking at the trail of Messiah, of Christ, through the Scriptures. But we'll go ahead and let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into this. Um, uh, and hopefully be able to look at all this today, all right? So, Father, we, uh, we thank you for the, your word. We uh, just pray that you'd help us this year to uh, purpose to spend more time in your word. And, uh, Lord, not just so, uh, you know, we can be, have knowledge, but, Lord, so that we can be close to you, learn more about you, be used of you as we ought this year. We pray that uh, as we embark in this uh, new year, 2023 now, that you would, again, just help this to be a very spiritually profitable year for us individually, for us as a church, and just, again, for your work in this world and in our country. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen. All right, consider first of all, we, we started here in the New Testament, but some Old Testament background to this thought, okay? There's uh, two great themes that we've, we've looked at both of these in s at least to some degree in some light in, in looking at a number of the Psalms and so on over the last several months, but two great themes in the Old Testament concerning Messiah relate to, number one, his being the promised seed, that's an important concept, all right? Remember back in Genesis 3:15, uh, Genesis 22:18 being not just the seed of the woman, 3:15, but Abraham's seed, the seed of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49:10, right? But also then as his being the promised son, um, and of course that is important in in manyfold, but being God's son. That's what's stressed first, really, and foremost about Messiah. But then also we see, in fact, if somebody, uh, maybe I ought to write some of these up on the board, but uh, if somebody wants to turn to Psalm 110, we've looked at that before, but Psalm 110, um, 
Just, just read the entire psalm, if you would, John, when you get there. It's only like seven verses. Yeah. The, Lord said, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thy enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest, for after the order of Melchizedek, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink the brook. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. All right, that, that psalm, it begins, first couple of verses emphasize there the sonship of Messiah, but as being the Son of God, because it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, all right, uh, and then remember in the New Testament, Matthew 22, uh, about verse 40, Jesus uses that psalm is a basis to ask the Pharisees a question, all right? Whose son is Christ? And uh, they answer what? Do you remember? David's son. And then the, Jesus, referring back to this psalm, says, well, if that's true, he wasn't denying that it was true. It was the right answer, partly, right? Uh, but he said, you know, how does David then call him Lord in this psalm if he's David's son? And he was trying to tie together the two aspects of Messiah's sonship. Messiah was God's son, but he is also a son of David. And that's obviously very important in the, in the big scope of things. Okay, So uh, the Lord Jesus asked this question. Now that, that theme of the promised son, we, I'm not going to give you the list. Of, we, we've looked at a number of passages in the past about that. But one of those being Isaiah 9, all right, verses 6 and 7, which is an important uh, passage. But uh, Christ being God's son as well as David's son. Now, as the son of God, Christ literally, if you think about it this way, I mean, Christ literally, he has the right to anything and everything, all right? I mean, he's, he's God. He can kind of, you know, if he wanted to exert that authority, he'd say he could do whatever, all right? He has all power, uh, all authority. However, it's interesting to me that in, in like such as that thought and other things, God restricts himself, if I can word it that way, to keeping his word. In other words, he could do whatever, he's God, but he, he holds himself to staying in line with certain precedents that, pre, precedences, I don't know if that's really a word, that he has already set, okay? And, and, and like, if you want to say rules that he's set for, for men, God keeps within those himself. Um, and, and so as, as God, uh, the Son of God, Christ literally has the right to anything and everything. However, God holds himself, he holds his words as supreme authority, and so he follows his own words. So then, the Lord Jesus Christ, he meets all the criteria set forth in the Old Testament, and that is very important. So here's the, here's the question then. According to the criteria that the Old Testament sets out, who could rule in Israel? 
I don't know if you ever thought about that question. I haven't necessarily a whole lot, but until recently thinking about this theme. But who could rule? Are there qualifications that are set forth? Well, there are, all right? And there are not a whole lot of them, but there are several, all right? So think about this. Every king that's ever ruled, at least in a rightful sense, over Israel or even after Solomon when the kingdom was divided, so we'll say Israel and Judah at that point, all right? Every king that's ever rightfully ruled has met at least one of these two qualifications, and a few, as we'll, we could see, Christ fits this, have met both, all right? But one is every king, in fact, from Saul on, all right, Saul, the first king before David, but every king that's rightfully ruled has ruled by being ordained by a prophet of God, anointed and ordained for that purpose, all right? Saul was anointed to be king by Samuel, although Saul was not really God's choice as such, he's put forth as being kind of a choice of the people, although you don't see the people really voting and getting, you know, saying we want him as king, but God was, there were were reasons in, in doing all of that, but Saul was the first king and Samuel anointed Saul to be king. Now Saul He disqualified himself through his sin, and so God sent Samuel to anoint. And it's interesting, the comparison. It's like Saul was uh, uh, appointed to be king because he was kind of like a king after the criteria of all the other nations. He was a man's man. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was, you know, he had physical qualifications to be king. But yet... There are other qualifications that he obviously didn't meet. And in the comparison of that, when when, uh, uh, God sends Samuel to anoint David as king, he specifies that he is sending him to anoint a king after mine own heart. That's the way God says it. All right, so there's a whole different aspect. David was obviously a man's man as well. I mean, David was a warrior. I mean, from a youth, you know, he, he kills Goliath. All right. Now, obviously, there's divine intervention in all of that, but but David was he wasn't you know he wasn't a sissy so to speak, but he was a man after God's own heart, and that's the main distinction that's made between the two of them. And so uh, you have you have uh, Saul, and again, the reason I'm pointing that out is first king, but he was he was rightfully king. He was you know God permitted and appointed him to be king. There were reasons in that. Now, he failed, and God replaced him, all right? So God replaces Saul with David. Now, David was anointed by a prophet, by Samuel, on behalf of God, to be king, all right? And I contend that you'll see that pattern consistent throughout the rest of the kings. Now, that doesn't mean that, for instance, every other king was personally anointed, but by virtue that David was anointed to be king, David's descendants, his sons, were in right to be king, okay? Now, consider a couple things about that, all right? David was anointed, then Solomon, all right? Solomon was just David's son, although it does, the scripture does give indication that Solomon was also God's pick to be the next king, all right? There's, there is indication of that, uh, but then you see Uh, Again, just the lineage being passed down uh, in that. And interesting, any conspiracy to do away with the house of David after David was anointed to be king 
was doomed to failure. You can read Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, the part of that book of Emmanuel with that uh, in, in Isaiah's book. But there's, there's emphasis there that, that David's lineage was not going to be thwarted in its rule. All right? And of course, ultimately, that's pointing to Messiah. But, but God made a special covenant with David to that effect as well. And so again, there's, you know, that Davidic covenant establishes that a lot. So stop for a second and think about the kings of Israel after the divided kingdom. What about them? Well, who was the first king of Israel, the 10 tribes, the northern tribes? Jeroboam. Was he rightfully king of Israel? Ah, he was anointed by a prophet appointed to be the king. It was because of Solomon's sin, all right? And he was appointed to be king. Now, because he was ordained, appointed to be king, then he had several sons that ruled after him who kept that lineage going. Now, God intervened again because of sin there, all right, and said, okay, you're only going to have three generations that are going to sit on the throne, and I'm taking it away, all right? And then you'll see that God allows usurpers to come in and assassinate these people and so on and, you know, carry out his judgment. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how all the things intertwine in that, but God then appoints others, all right? For instance, just one that comes to mind is Jehu. You remember him? He slew all of Ahab's house. Ahab's father was one that assassinated a king, all right? And, and I mean, it just, but, but God ceases Ahab's line, and instead, a king then comes up who God, remember, through Elisha the prophet. He had an, uh, another prophet on his behalf go and anoint Jehu to be king. But what I'm getting at is there's a pattern, and there's qualifications there that were met. And those that didn't meet those qualifications were taken out of the way. They were all assassinated. In Judah's line, all right, in, in David's descendants, all right, there was a time when, uh, remember, Athaliah, all right, because her husband was killed and then, uh, you know, she had one of her, her son uh, reigned for a while. He was killed and then uh, Athaliah claimed the throne. And, of course, then God had her taken out of the way. And so, I mean, it's just, and, and so that then that the rightful uh, line could continue there in ruling in Judah, all right? So you see that pattern throughout, all right? So keep those two things in mind. That's very important. So two qualifications are what, in case they got lost in all of that there? One is, all right, has to be, in fact, I don't think I mentioned the second one, actually. It has to be a someone who has rightful appointment from God or the direct heir of that person because that, that heir continues on. All right, so the rightful appointment, ordination, you know, by a prophet. And then secondly, this then comes into the picture because of God's covenant to David, also being a descendant of David, qualified one to be king. All right, and so keep those two things in mind. So we jump to the New Testament, and there's a lot of things we could look at in there, but you jump to the New Testament. The New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, but also that as a man, Jesus is the son of David. He's a descendant of David. For the Jews, physical lineage was very important. 
So not only as God's son does Jesus have right to rule, but as a son of David, he has right to the throne as well. And this is where the genealogies in the New Testament come into the picture here. Very important. We're going to get to those in just a second. But would someone turn to 1 Chronicles? Um, trying to think here. What, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and read verses 10 through 16. 1 Chronicles 17 verses 10 through 16. All right, Andy's got that. <coughs> okay. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover I will subdue all thy enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee in house. And that shall come to pass when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build thee in house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in my house, and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. And David the king came, and sat before the Lord, and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that thou hast brought me hitherto? And yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God, for thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come, and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. All right, now, I think probably, hopefully everybody caught the gist of that enough, right? That's, that's Nathan the prophet talking to David and reiterating God's promise to David, all right, that God revealed to, to Nathan. Um, and Nathan went and told David. That, it, that's First Chronicles' account of it. It's also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, all right? Um, both are the two accounts that are, that are referred to as the Davidic covenant, God making a covenant with David that of his seed he would have an eternal heir on the throne. Now, there's a difference in the two passages, too, if you were to read them. We only read the one, but the 2 Samuel passage is it emphasizes more the immediate heir of David, Solomon, and his building of the temple and so on. Because in the context there, that is the result, the, the, the God sending Nathan to David and giving him that message is the result of David expressing the day before that he wanted to build a place for the ark. He wanted to build a temple, all right? And then, uh, you know, Nathan's like, yeah, go ahead, good idea. Do all you, you know, you desire to do. And then God says, nope, he can't do that, uh, and so on. So that, that's more the emphasis in 2 Samuel. In 1 Chronicles 17, the emphasis is more on not Solomon, the direct immediate son of David, but an eternal heir, right? There's a number of, of things in that passage that point to that. Um, and that he'll, you know, God's covenant is going to stand forever. He's going to have an eternal throne and so on. It's obviously looking beyond Solomon and not any single one of David's physical descendants other than Christ, Messiah. All right? And, uh, and who, well, we'll get to that in a second. So, so 
the genealogy of the Lord Jesus is extremely important. So of the two of the four gospels, excuse me, only two of the four gospel records that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, only two of them have a genealogy and actually even talk about the birth of Jesus. Of course, them being Matthew and Luke. You're familiar with that, all right? But uh, the two genealogies, though, have gotten attention, much attention through the years by skeptics and others because if you read the two, they don't seem to match, right? And obviously, they don't match in reality, but the point is they aren't intended to match, right? They're two different uh, presentations, and we'll talk a little bit about those, right? So besides differing in number of names, and I didn't, I didn't write all these, you know, copy all these statistics down here, but Matthew, I believe, has total 41 names, and Luke has 70-some, and I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot of differences in the two. Okay, but uh, besides differing in the number of names and even in the names themselves, these two lineages have other distinctions as well. And a very common and well-intended, I think, explanation of these is that Matthew presents Jesus's royal line back to David through Joseph. Anybody ever heard that uh, reasoning? And then Luke presents Jesus's real line which is really his physical line, back to David through his mother Mary and, and through a different son of Joseph as well, right? And that might be partially true, right? But still, it still misses much of the picture because a good question to ask is, if Jesus is not the real son of Joseph, then why do we even need Joseph's pedigree, all right? Uh, but the two records are not just differing lines, they're both part of a bigger picture that's presented in both gospel accounts, all right? So consider Matthew's genealogical record. We're not going to take and, and read everything there, but if you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and just notice a few things, all right, uh, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. Luke doesn't begin his with a genealogy, all right? Luke begins with the genealogy, and again, this genealogy, it, it is uh, pretty much universally, if you want to say, agreed that this is literally the genealogy of Joseph, all right, which, which it is, okay, and, and it traces Jesus, all right, or up to Jesus, I should say, but from Abraham through David and Solomon, David's son, who was the actual next king, right, and then if you read that, You'll compare with the Old Testament records that every name in there up through verse 12, all right, every name in there was an actual king of Israel or Judah, all right? So this is actually the, the kingly line that followed through the, New, the Old Testament, all right? And then you have it departs when you get to verse 12, but as, you know, some would think, okay, it's only because this is when the Babylonian captivity took place, and then there were no more kings uh, in, in Judah or Israel after that point, and still not today, by the way, all right? That, that situation still continues to be the case, all right? So, yeah, and we would say the very next king that there is to be over Israel, or at least scripturally speaking, will be Messiah, will be the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? But it, it does present that, but there's some other reasons in that. Matthew's account begins with the genealogy, 
uh, again, that's, that's quite universally agreed to be Joseph's actual line, and then goes back to David and then back to Abraham. Even Luke. Now, even Luke makes it clear that uh, Joseph was of the house of David. He was a descendant of David. All right? So, you know, it's both Gospels in presenting this, they, they both emphasize that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. All right? And that's why in Luke's account, he says that, you know, uh, Joseph and Mary, and at that point, the unborn baby Jesus traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem because they were of the house and lineage of David, all right? And so you have this, all right? But, but Matthew's genealogical record is not thorough. He skips names, all right? That can be seen by comparing it with the Old Testament. He doesn't claim that it's necessarily thorough, but it, the, Matthew's is, is specifically done for specific reasons, all right? The kings that he leaves out basically could be argued that they were wicked kings, although he includes some wicked kings, uh, in here as well, but he leaves out some names, all right, and uh, and he he includes the names of four women, which you've probably recognized that before. That is very unusual, but he he includes the names of four women, which all have an interesting connection. Okay, to say it that way, all right. Rahab, the first one. What do we know about Rahab? All right, she had been a harlot, apparently got saved, right, and became a Jew, all right, and she was the great-grandmother of David. Uh, I mean, uh, then you have uh, even, well, I say the first one, that was before, uh, she wasn't the first, but uh, you have, you have uh, Tamar, uh, Judah's daughter-in-law, who then actually bore him children, all right, and you have uh, uh, Ruth. You have Rahab, and then you have Bathsheba. These are interesting picks, all right? But again, and there's, there's reasons that these are listed here, and, and we're not going to get into all those right now. But my point being is that Matthew's um, presentation of this genealogy is not to show that Jesus is the rightful heir of David's throne. In fact, I would say his presentation of this genealogy is to show that it has nothing to do with Joseph, and that Joseph, Jesus could not claim the throne through Joseph, right? Why? Well, verse 12 is the key. And, they were, and after they were brought, well, let me start in verse uh, 10, just to give it some context. And Ezekias begat Manasses, and Manasses begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias. Josias was the last good king, if you want to say. Uh, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. All right, now Jeconias was not the king right after Josiah. So here's some names that are left out. All right, actually, Jeconias had a brother who was king before him for a short bit. He was taken out by, by the king of Egypt, Shishak. And then Jeconias, as is named here, uh, was, was put on the throne to become king. Jeconias, that name might sound weird, but... He's known by, there's at least four names in the Bible that this one man is called, okay, because of various things. But Jeconias here is the New Testament uh, rendition, if you want to say, of Jeconiah from the Old Testament, who is also referred to as Coniah in uh, Second Chronicles. You see his given name was Jehoiachin, 
Jehoiakim, however you want to say it, but C-H-I-N, all right? Um, this man, though, he was, his father, Jehoiakim, was, did I say that? His father was Jehoiakim, who was Josiah's son. Je, uh, Jeconias was Josiah's grandson, all right? But Jehoiakim, his father was wicked, reigned for a short time, he was deposed, and Jeconiah, or Coniah, or Jehoiachin, he was put on the throne being eight years old, all right? And only was there for a couple months. Nebuchadnezzar came, took him to Babylon, along with a lot of other people, all right? When the Babylonians came and, and took over, and this is why he's associated with the captivity here. But uh, would somebody read uh, Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 30? This is why this is important here. Um, Jeremiah 22, chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. All right, Pastor. As I live, saith the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. And I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out, and thy mother, and that bear thee into another country, where ye were not born, and there shall ye die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, neither shall they not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? Is that it? Is that through 30? No. A couple more. O earth, earth. Wow, three earths here. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. All right, you see that? that it's interesting, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, there's a lot of historical setting concerning the king Josiah and following up until the Babylonian captivity. And in the midst of that, all right, because of sin, it's interesting that if you, in that passage, it seems that the... The, the judgment that is pronounced on Jeconiah or Jeconias, Coniah, uh, was more because of his father's sin. I mean, he was only eight years old, and, but it was more for his father's sin, but it's pronounced on him. But the emphasis there is it doesn't matter what God's saying, no descendant of Jeconiah was ever going to be king. He's cutting the line of David off right there. Now, does that break the Davidic covenant? Does that break God's word to David? That David would have a king, an eternal king, that would sit on his throne? No, it doesn't. But it does demonstrate in Matthew's presentation of Jesus. What's the whole purpose of Matthew's gospel? He's presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews, the rightful king of the Jews. Jesus could not be if his line was his line to David was dependent on Joseph's line, which went back through that man, Coniah. 
The Jews would never accept that because of what the Old Testament says. All right? So Matthew's demonstrating that Jesus' claim to be king is not based on Joseph. All right? It was based on something else. All right? And that's where, uh, where again, there's, you keep in the whole purpose of Matthew's gospel, what he's writing about in all this. Now, so Matthew starts with this genealogy demonstrating that Jesus is, you know, he's Joseph. He recognizes Joseph's line could not continue to rule. Joseph was a descendant of David. Yeah, he was of the house and lineage of David. But because of God's word through Jeremiah, Joseph had no right to the throne. Right? And a long line of Joseph's forefathers from Coniah on. Right? But then what does Matthew do? He goes right into talking about the virgin birth. So his emphasis is, okay, Jesus is not Joseph's son. So you can't, you know, it was assumed by many people in that day that Jesus was Joseph's son, right? We'll see it in Luke's account. Luke uses the phrase, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, all right? And then, you know, on other occasions in the city of Nazareth, when Jesus was trying to minister there, and, you know, he never, he never performed miracles and never did much in Nazareth because they didn't accept him. And what did they say about him? Is not this the carpenter's son? They, they still, you know, were counting on him being Joseph's son. And so Matthew's saying, you know, Jesus is not Joseph's son. So he has, he has right to the throne because he's not Joseph's son. All right. And so he then emphasizes the, the virgin birth and so on. And everything around that in the first couple chapters of Matthew concerning Jesus' birth is, is like through the, the perspective of Joseph, not Mary. Luke's account's the opposite. Luke, everything in Luke's account of those early, you know, the, the infancy and, 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 and birth of Christ, all that, is from Mary's perspective, not Joseph's perspective. All right? Uh, Joseph had an important role, by the way, obviously. Je he was not Jesus' father. Had nothing to do, you know, physically with Jesus' birth. The Bible makes that clear. But... He had an important trust put upon him from God. He was, you know, a protector and provider for Jesus as a young child. I mean, right after the, uh, the, the talking about the virgin birth, G, uh, Matthew goes in again. What's the, what's the, in Matthew 2, it's the visit of the wise men, right? Magi from the east. And what do they come to Jerusalem asking? Where is he that's born king of the Jews, right? So, but, but. Then through all of that, you know, the Lord uh, supernaturally warns Joseph to take Mary and, and Jesus, the baby, flee to Egypt, right, for their protection. And then he, he gives them, you know, word to come back and so on. So again, Joseph had an important role. I mean, he was, he was part of the plan of the scheme, but he was not Jesus' father, had no physical connection with Jesus. And that's important, right, again, because of... All the things, and then Matthew's presentation. So go to Luke chapter 1. Again, this is where we started. This is where we're going to end up. And uh, i got to hurry, though. Seems that way. I get started slow and have to finish fast, I guess. But um, so in Luke's account here, all right, Luke's, uh, by general comparison, Luke's gospel differs from Matthew in many ways. All right, Luke is more chronological in his presentation of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Mark is the most, probably. Uh, but, but Luke is, is 
Matthew, or Matthew is themed presented. There's six major sections in Matthew where he presents Jesus in a certain light. And we don't have time to get into that right now. But Luke's, Luke's presentation of Jesus is different. And Luke presents Jesus not as the king of the Jews, but as the perfect man or as the son of man using an Old Testament prophetic title of him. That's the title that's used of Jesus more than other, any other in Luke's uh, gospel. And, and <clears throat> Luke is, is more detailed as a historian, as a chronicler than what Matthew is. Luke gives dates and details of what he's talking about to put things in a, in a historical perspective as well as giving credence to what he's saying. He's not just making something up. He's giving you the, the details, the settings of when it took place, where it was, so that you can check it out if you want it, all right? And others have checked out Luke's um, uh, writings in that. In fact, I think it was uh, Robert Anderson, uh, the British archaeologist or whatever, Sir Robert Anderson, who, who was agnostic and went, uh, spent years of his life trying to, uh, to, if you want to say, find mistakes in Luke's writing uh, and so on, and ended up becoming a believer because of what he said, Luke being the, the most true historian in history. And so... Uh, and he's not the only one, I'm sure, that things like that could be said about. But Luke's account, all right, is different. Luke begins his gospel with John the Baptist's, uh, you know, with, the, with an introduction to Theophilus, and then he, he basically starts with uh, John the Baptist's announcement uh, to Elizabeth, the angel's announcement of John's birth to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and so on, and then we have the, it moves on to what we, we read to begin with about the angel foretelling Jesus' birth to Mary, all right? And uh, then we have an account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter two, all right? The, what you would call the actual chronicling account of the birth of Jesus, which is different than the wise men's visit in Matthew two, which would have happened after, sometime after the birth of Christ. Right? Wasn't at the manger scene that the wise men came and so on anyway. But you have, you have uh, this basic thing here. And then in chapter 3, of, so, so by Luke chapter 2, you have very clear information that Jesus, this one born to Mary, was the Son of God. She was, and the Bible makes it clear, she was literally a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. A miracle, obviously. Unheard of, right? But a miracle, but that's part of the whole thing, right? He's a miracle. He's the Son of God. And so when you get to Luke chapter 3, you have the genealogy given in Luke's account, which instead of starting at Abraham and tracing up to Jesus, as Matthew did, Luke goes the opposite. He starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam, to God creating Adam, all right? But in, and I got to hurry, but Luke's account presents the chronology, the, uh, the genealogy of Jesus, his literal physical genealogy through his mother Mary. Now, you don't see her name uh, appearing here, of course, but it's Mary's account, and there's reasons that, that that's the case, all right? Uh, and there's, there's two main reasons, and these... One of them could get technical, and I'm going to try not to do that, but just because of the grammatical construction, 
All right, it's clear that Joseph is presented as the son-in-law of Heli, all right, in um, verse 23, not the son of, all right, of, of Heli. Heli would have been Mary's father, all right? And it was a common thing, okay, if someone was tracing uh, by, in Jewish law and tradition, women typically weren't named in genealogies, right? But if you were tracing a woman's genealogy, you would do it through putting her husband's name in her place, all right? And so uh, that, was, that was common. Also, the, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmuds recognized that Miriam, which is the, the Hebrew name of Mary, right? Her father was Heli. It's, that's, that's recognized, all right? And so, again, there's, there's uh, plenty of, of evidence and reasons that Luke's, Luke's genealogy here is tracing Jesus back physically through Mary. It's the only physical connection he had. Right, was through Mary, not through Joseph, but all the way back. But you'll notice that this genealogy goes back to David. All right? And again, without all the other things involved in that, remember what the two Old Testament qualifications that, were, that we saw that were to be met if one was to rightfully claim to be king of Israel or, and or Judah. Right? What were those? One is a, after the Davidic covenant, a literal descendant of David. Was Jesus a literal descendant of David? Yes, he was through Mary. He was not after Solomon's line down through, which, which was cut off by God at Jeconiah, remember? God cut it off, said, nope, that, that's not going to continue. So it had to be through another line of David. David's line at that time was obviously getting kind of broad, okay? There were a lot of descendants, but so it had to be a descendant of David, and Jesus meets that criteria. The second is he had to be appointed, anointed, appointed, ordained, if we could say, by God or a prophet of God. What does Jesus meet that qualification? All right. Well, you could say a hundred times over because of all the Old Testament prophets that prophesied about Jesus, and he met those, but also consider two other things in that, and i got to hurry. All right. Luke starts with who? John the Baptist, not Jesus. All right. What did John the Baptist do? His whole point was to be a prophet to proclaim the coming king, All right? the, the Messiah. Uh, and the prophet Isaiah makes that clear that, that God appointed John to do that. He's not named John in the Old Testament, but Isaiah makes it clear. Book of Malachi talks about it as well. So you have that, all right? You have, again, the Old Testament written prophets. You have John the Baptist. And then uh, you also have the angel. We read the verses earlier, if I can find it again here, uh, in Luke chapter 1. Um, Several times in here, you have the angel telling Mary that, that her baby, Jesus, was appointed by God to be the king. All right? Uh, let, me, let me, a couple of these here. All right? Verse 32. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. All right? God's recognizing that Jesus is a descendant of David there, right? He's, he's going to have David's throne. So he qualifies for that as well, okay? Again, so you, you can be argued, and i gotta, I got to stop, but it can be argued 
that Jesus meets all the qualifications. There's a lot of other things that you could list that Jesus met as far as qualifications. But, uh, but although he goes back to David through one of David's other sons, a son named Nathan, not Solomon, the scripture still recognizes that as qualifying because he had to be a son of David. It doesn't say he had to be a son of Solomon. It says he had to be a son of David. All right? And so, again, there's other things that we're not going to have time to get to here, but he meets the qualifications, those twofold qualifications, divine appointment and descendant of David. All right? And so you see that very clearly, and i got to stop, but in that passage in Luke chapter 1, that is that, that, the fact that he was the rightful king is referred to several times to Mary in that. I mean, and, you know, and, and the scripture says, you know, basically after the birth of Jesus and all this, Mary just ponders all these things in her heart. Can you imagine being, being Mary and getting this kind of news? I mean, I'm sure it was, it was probably a lot, you know? I mean, she's probably overwhelmed. Uh, with all this. It would have been, I'm sure, overwhelming enough just becoming pregnant in the, in the fashion that she did, all right, and just all of that, but then all of this other stuff. I mean, this is, this is a lot of stuff, but, uh, but the scriptures bear out to the world that Jesus is clearly qualified to claim the messianic throne, the throne of David. Anyway, I gotta stop there. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you that we have uh, a Savior who uh, is, is qualified and in every way, uh, not just because of who he is, that he's your son, he's the son of God, and therefore, really, that, that settles it, but, but you saw to it that he meets all the other qualifications as well, so that really no one has a true argument against his authority, his kingship, and we thank you for that. We ask that you... Help us now. Bless the service to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.